What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from ndhackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what their story's like and what's going on behind the scenes so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and from their mistakes. Today, I'm here with Philip Lahou. Philip, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hey, thanks a lot, Cortland, for having me. So the last time we talked was over a year ago. You did a text interview for ND Hackers back in August of 2016. At that time, you were making $45,000 a month from conferencebadge.com, and you had just switched over to working on your new app, Missive. So I have to ask, uh, 13 months later here, how are things going with conferencebadge.com and with Missive, and do you in any way regret switching from one to the other? Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting because, uh, you know, every time I, I talk about my story or the place I am right now, people say, you know, you're really fortunate because, you know, most people want to start businesses, right? You know, I started a project three, four years ago now called conferencebadge.com and it went successful pretty quick. And the thing is that I realized quite soon that the project was major, people liked it and they didn't really want to spend more time kind of adding more features. At the same time, my, my partners, which at the time when I, I founded Conference Badge with them, were, were actually working with me part-time. So, and, and as soon as the project got successful, I just wanted to work more and more with them. And one which actually start working with them was kind of tell them, we should just start working on something else, right? Just on Conference Badge, which, which could be could, could be to pay the bills, right? We could start, you know, trying to find out the problems we're, we're having. And, and start, you know, acting around those. And that's where Missive was born. And, and after three years now, uh, Missive, you know, it, it's a really ambitious project, but it's, it's starting to grow now. And, and, and we're at a place where we're really satisfied with the product. And, you know, what's funny is when I talk to my co-founder is that, you know, we've never been as motivated as we are today because we, we see the value in our customers are really liking the product. So we're really fortunate to have Conference Badge, which is still growing. Uh, we have one really awesome employees managing it, and then we can focus most of our energy in that, that new project. And how, how big is Conference Badge now? Because I know it was, it was 45K a month a year ago. Yeah, so Conference Badge right now, you know, it's a seasonal business, right? So Conference happens mostly uh, uh, autumn and spring, right? So summer is usually smaller months in terms of revenues. But right now for, for next ocean, we're planning for around like between 80 to 90,000 US dollars if, if it's oh, wow. going according to the plan. So, so Conference Badge uh, has been growing the entire time while you've been working on your new thing. Yeah, but, but the, I must say we didn't kind of stop working on it. I mean, we are still providing what I consider to be like AAA customer support and we're still listening to the small complaints, you know, still things that are a bit too rough in the product are not good enough. And we're making really, really tiny improvement where the times where we really feel we could improve it. So, so it's not like we just dump the project and let it die, really. It's still uh, being maintained, you know, daily by our employee. And we still, you know, from time to time, invest a bit of time to, to fix some problems we find along the way. So there's a very long and detailed history behind how you got to where you are today. And I think while that's true in the case of every entrepreneur, the difference with you is that the story is actually interesting all the way through rather than just being interesting right at the end when you find success. Looking back at your story, it, it seems like you're what you're really good at is taking 
uh, one level of success and using it as a springboard to reach an even higher level of success. Basically, you're just snowballing all of your wins and accumulating even bigger wins, which is hard for a lot of people to do because I think the normal way of being for most people is that if you find something that works, you really put all your focus into just not losing it. If somebody has a stable job that's paying them a healthy salary or they have a company that's making 50K a month, usually the last thing they want to do is take a huge risk and move on to something new. But it seems kind of like the story of your entire life and it's worked out very well for you. So why don't we start at the beginning of your story and walk through it and see if we can gain some insights. So let me start by asking what originally sparked your interest in tech and in business and what were the first steps that you took to become an entrepreneur? Yeah, so, you know, I'm 33 years old now, so it's, uh, I was pretty much, you know, I grew up with PC and, and the internet, and uh, my mother was uh, a, a teacher, and so we had a computer quite early on in my life, and and the first, obviously, the first thing I, I started to do was just, you know, gaming, right, like most kids, right, and I was gaming until I was like 14, 15 years old, and at some point, you know, the internet got bigger, and we, we, I, I don't remember if at that time we had like a high speed internet connection, but my mother started to actually do website. And, and one she did was for, you know, uh, for uh, our family tree, like genealogy, right? So she started building a website and, and, and as a pretentious kid, I just, you know, kind of did laugh at her skill saying like, mom, it's not good. It looks ugly, you know? <laughs> and, 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 and she laughed and she told, well, uh, well, she doesn't call me son. Obviously, she's friend, but she says, "Son, you can do if you can do better. Just, just you know, start working." And then I, I, I took her to to her onwards, and I just start creating website. And actually, the first one I ever created is is something that ultimately got success and earned me quite a lot of money. Is that I just start to look in on the internet for free, like all these games, you know, legal games, but free games, and I gathered all of them in, inside one website and obviously i'm you know french canadian so i speak french so the website was in french and there was no other websites website doing that at that time so quickly it gathered like you know hundreds of visitors uh, and it was host like an at the time it's called geocity of, of france was called multimania.fr right just host games there and really grew slowly slowly to a point where you know, I had like thousands, thousands of visitors a day and I didn't really know what I was doing, right? How did you decide to put together this website of free games? Because I was also playing a lot of video games as a kid and making websites and that idea never occurred to me. Did you, was it something that you were just making for yourself or did you figure that it would be really popular with other people or was it something that you were doing to learn to code? I mean, what was motivating you? I think, I, well, I did it for myself. But the funny thing is that I was a bit ashamed, right? Because, uh, you know, the cool kids I knew doing website were kind of doing website for their, you know, Counter-Strike clan or StarCraft clan. And it was there like creating a website for really old games no one really cared about, you know, at least for my inner circles of friends. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. I just, you know, uh, it's been a long time. So I, I, I can't really answer that. But, you know, it was just like available resources that I could gather you know, and, 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 and gather and expose to the world. So it's pretty much it, I think. When did you notice that your website started picking up steam and people were actually coming to visit? You know, during that time, you still had like kind of some small, you know, analytics tools that could tell you how many visitors you had a day and things like that. And I think after a week or two, I already 
had like 10 to 20 visitors and already at the time I was hooked. You know, I, I wanted to post my link everywhere on the web and trying to get, I don't remember the name, but there was kind of uh, a place when you, where you were listed on, on that website, it would like kind of skyrock your uh, search engine rankings. So I really worked hard to get a link there and it worked and slowly, you know, I was linked across hundreds of websites because I was just literally spend all my time posting the links everywhere <laughs> and it actually worked and 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 slowly i just start to um work on the website making making it look better uh you know without really knowing what i was doing you know obviously i was uh you know resources in french were pretty rare at the time so i kind of had to learn english as i as i go to actually learn how to do things and and it's funny because on that time you would see things on a website and you would be like, oh my God, how can they do that? You know, it's impossible. I have absolutely no idea. And then you would just say it would take six months, but at some point you would kind of, it would click. So it was, oh, that's it. It's just like an image cut and it, it's in a table, <laughs> right? You, yeah, so it's, it's magic. But at the end, it's not that hard. And so you go through all those steps and at some point you're kind of becoming better. Yeah, you're just a kid reverse engineering all these websites and you're it seems like you weren't under any sort of time pressure to like I have to be, you know, an expert programmer next month or it's not worth it. You just took the time and, and didn't matter to you if it was gonna take six months for you to learn and over the course of how many years were you working on this website? I don't know. I you know, at least, you know, ten years. You know, wow. the story is that it brought me a lot of money in the end because initially started with cheap web page, but at some point I, you know, learned a yes. ASP and host it like on a Microsoft servers and kind of make it more dynamic, add more content, and then switch to PHP. And it really picked up a lot of traffic. You know, I think the biggest day I ever had was like 60,000 visitors. That's huge. That's a lot of people. I've never, I've never done something like that again. But, you know, it, it was a point in time where if you were doing something new that was not available, you know, everyone would kind of go looked at it. You know, it was kind of the, one of the first free games website in French. And it was just people were looking for that. It's really interesting to look at the fact that building this website in French was so advantageous for you. Because you're really taking advantage of all of the benefits of picking a niche. The basic idea here is that you choose a target audience and you build something that's so specific and so good for them that it really would make no sense for them to ever choose a competing product. If you are a French Canadian looking for free games and there's only one site that's in French, then like that's the one you're going to go to. And then there's a whole other advantage as well, which is that if you pick a niche and you don't have that much competition, then you don't have to make as many risky decisions. So if you think about the opposite case, somebody who's in a market with a ton of competition, they're constantly thinking about how they can stand out and differentiate themselves and do something new. And if you're doing all these new, unproven things, there's a high chance that they're going to flop. Whereas if you're in a niche and you don't have very much competition, you can just take an old tried and true idea that you know is going to work and go with that. So I think you, uh, you did it right. Well, I did it right, but I didn't know I was doing it right. It was just a lot. It was just a hobby for me. So it wasn't really about money. It was, you know, at first, it didn't have any ads on the internet. I didn't even know you could make money, right? So how did you start making money? And how did you get to the point where you were reaching tens of thousands of visitors? Because I imagine that the strategies you started out with as a 15-year-old, uh, you eventually improved on and, and got better at. Yeah, well, the first, you know, uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty soon, I think I had some affiliate links 
to the website where people could kind of they were downloading like I don't know it's probably spyware but <laughs> I would get a dollar per download and subscription so you know I was making maybe making like five to ten bucks a day early on and and at some point I I, I experiment with 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 ads so pay-per-click ads and I just started to click on the ads myself like any kids would do <laughs> and see like oh my god I'm gonna be rich like it I'm already like at, at, at $100 just need to click on more ads right <laughs> and, and and I think it was a Canadian company uh, so they probably would, didn't have like really big fraud detection tech at that time so it took at least a month before they catch me and then they obviously I never saw a penny of that of, of that money because uh, they kind of banned me. <laughs> but it was my first experience, and it kind of teach me. Okay, you need to play by the rules. Don't be stupid. It doesn't work like that. And then slowly, uh, you know, I was kind of making a bit of money with Affiliate Link. It wasn't that that big, but at some point, you know, as my interest on the project was fading because I was now at university playing rugby football I you know was not really that interested anymore didn't make that much money right my 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 friends working at the bar was making more money than me but then uh Google AdSense was released and I put it on the website and instantly I I switched from ten dollars a day to something like three hundred dollars a day whoa and and that's completely changed kind of the game for me because it was like well, I'm not that proud about that project, but man, it's making me a lot of money now. <laughs> so you were in college at this point. Did you consider making this your full-time job? Because I, I think most people in that situation would, would be like, I don't need a job. I can If I'm making 300 bucks a day, let me just stick with this and try to you know increase it. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I didn't work anywhere else, but I didn't see that as like a legitimate project or business that could kind of grow. I was kind of always thinking it would just in a week or in a year you know you know it, it, it can't work really i can't be making money hosting free games on the internet right <laughs> it can't be possible so you know it, it wasn't a time where entrepreneurship was that big you know at least in in canada it wasn't like you know it's not like silicon valley today you know probably if i had that success at that age today you know it would be a completely different game because people would advise me to do things right as of that time, my, my father was like, hey, son, you know, where is that money coming from? Really, it can't be possible. What are you doing, right? Are you <laughs> sure it's legal? And I was like, yeah, it's legal. And I remember we even took advice. You know, we paid a lot of money to get advice because he feared that, like, I, since Google wasn't paying taxes in Canada, like, the government would go back to me and ask me to pay back, right? So, you know, I was putting... Um, some cash in case you know in five years the government would, would come back and ask for for the taxes which of course you know i was like well dad everyone is you know is having google adsense you know, never want ne no people actually save money to pay the government it's not a real thing really you know it won't happen it was like no, son, you, need, you actually need to do that i was like okay okay so you so, said you know I wasn't I wasn't an entrepreneur at that time. I was just still a kid like playing with with the internet. Uh, it wasn't like something I, I wasn't thinking about becoming an entrepreneur still at that point. It was just like oh my god, I make a lot of money. Yeah, it's fascinating how much our thought processes are shaped by kind of the conversations going on around us and, and what other people are talking about. And if you don't hear anybody talking about 
making websites and making money online as an indie hacker, then it totally makes sense that you wouldn't really consider that to be a legitimate career or a path that you can follow. You know, it just doesn't seem like a thing that people are doing. So did you ever, you know, decide to get serious and eventually turn this into a full-time job? And if not, what did you decide to do? Well, slowly, I actually started to implement more features and, you know, it was 2004 now and 2005. And so all the Web 2.0 was started to kick in. And, and now I could educate myself about entrepreneurship. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, all those blog about technology and entrepreneurship were, were kind of uh, uh, exposing me to that world. And, and so at that point, I kind of decided to... Uh, to build something on top of it. And uh, since I wasn't considering myself as a you know, programmer or a coder, I was just you know playing with things I didn't really know about. I, I thought, well, I should hire someone. So I looked for a computer engineer from, from, from the university where I was studying. And, and I just asked him, well, do you want to work for me? So we're just going to develop that website. I'm going to pay you per hours and, and it's going to be cool. And he said, yes, yeah. And, and, and you don't even have to pay me a lot, but... I'm going to develop, you know, my own, you know, PHP framework on the site that I'm going to use on your website. It was like, yeah, fine. That's <laughs> awesome. Right. So I didn't really know about, you know, I didn't, you know, I knew absolutely nothing about Rails or Django. I think we're quite new at the time. So it was like, yeah, why not? So it sounds like a really great idea. <laughs> I do remember that at one point I said, well, why don't you use Django if it looks so awesome? And it was like, no, I, you know, there's no, none in PHP. I want to do one, right? It was like, okay, makes sense. And so it took like six months. He rebuilt the website. And the idea was kind of to create uh, something like Congregate. So it was kind of the YouTube of Flash game. And I, I, that was kind of my idea. So, and um, we released the website and... Uh, it just really crashed. <laughs> it, it couldn't couldn't sustain the load of you know thousands of requests. This guy's framework just wasn't good, huh? Yeah, it wasn't good. It was absolutely no cache. So, you know, just just if you were listing like twenty comments on the home page, it would like query the database not only for each users but like for each property of each user. So. You know, one query for first name, one query for last name, one query like <laughs> so. So you know, and and personally, I didn't really know about MySQL things like that. So I was kind of a copy paste uh, snippet of code guy at that time. So I, I couldn't kind of debug this myself at first. But that's really at the point where you know I realized. Well, the thing is that because I, this website crashed for a couple of weeks uh, until we were able to kind of fix it. I lost all my ranking on Google, right? And at the time, I was kind of, you know, in between the third and the first rank, if you were typing uh, jeu, so which is game in Google, this is massive, you know? You know, I would have stick with that ranking, like just two or three years later, I would probably been bought off for, for, for hundreds of thousands of dollars because there was all those massive gaming websites, you know, surfing the wave of Web 2.0, and all those American companies trying to get into other languages, right? So I would have been like a perfect target to be bought off, right? But I just lost it because of my tech incompetence. And that's really where I kind of told myself now, you know, it can be a serious business. It's your passion. You want to work on that now. You know it, but you need to uh, educate yourself. You can do tech if you don't speak the language. And that's really where I started to learn coding by myself. 
And at first, it wasn't a passion. It was mostly I want to, you know, create things. Let's learn those language would let me, you know, create those things. But I slowly fall actually in love with, with the actual craft of, of coding. I mentioned this earlier, but I think a lot of people get discouraged when they think about learning to code or really learning to do anything. Because it's so easy to just look around and see so many hundreds of people who are way better than you are at this thing already. And so you're starting from way back. And people take that and they say, you know, if I'm not ahead of the game, but in fact I'm this far behind, then why even start? Did you deal with that at all or were you just gung-ho? Yeah, no, no, no. I deal with that a lot. You know, and the funny story is that, you know, I my driving license, I got it like at 25, right? And, you know, it was a bit of the same experience as when I was trying to learn to code is that, you know, since I didn't start, let's say coding, the normal path for me at that time would have been to go to computer and engineering, right? And since I didn't went into that way, I kind of feel like it, it wouldn't be attainable for me, right? Because I, you know, it was too late for me to choose that path, you know? Uh, at that time, maybe stupidly, I didn't think it was possible for me to learn this, you know, by myself. I would just always pretend to be a, a programmer since I would never been through all those engineering course knowing like the, the deep stack and everything so I would just always pretend to be one and it's the same thing with my driving lessons it's that I was just procrastinating it was like nah you know I, I don't <laughs> have it so just you know I need it but I'm just gonna uh, in six months right and and I feel it's it's the same for a lot of people when they try to learn something new it's that they see the mountain instead of seeing like well you know the first step to learn something is really to just Learn the few couple of simple things, simple concepts. And when you master them, you can experiment with them, right? Having fun with them. And it's often what I tell people that, that ask me if they should learn to code, even if they're 26, 30 years old. I'm like, yes, but you need to have fun in the process, you know? Don't start to code to build like a billion-dollar company. You know, it won't happen. You know, learn to code to to build a small prototype, you know, you're getting wet, like build your own, do the website yourself. You know, it won't be that beautiful, but at least you would have some experience. You will know if you like it, if you're, if you're going to be able to sustain hundreds of hours of non-rewarding work, right? So the first step is just to, to find your, your, your fun. And, and me personally, uh, after, you know, uh, my website kind of crashed and I, didn't lose interest because we're still like making like between 50 to 100 dollars a day which is kind of awesome right but uh i i i just start to you know prototype small games and experiment experiment with you know physics you know particles things that you know were really rewarding you know you code some things like for six hours then it animates in front of you to me that was kind of where yeah, I really got addicted to programming is when I developed those small games where you could instantly see the magic behind it. You know, it's, 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 it's endless the possibility you can actually achieve when you, you learn the craft of coding. So that's really when I get hooked to it. That's funny. So you, you learned really to help your business out so you wouldn't have to rely on other programmers who were writing, quite frankly, crappy code that was crashing your website. But your ambitions and your goals sort of ended up getting hijacked by the process of learning to code itself. And so you decided to go into what sounds like game development. What was your next step after you got better at coding? 
Yes. Uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, But the funny thing is that all of this happened, um, you know, I got really interested in the indie game space. And first reason, well, you know, my background with my game website, I've always kind of checked those games, right? They're, you know, at the time, most of those small prototypes were free, so I would kind of put them on my website. And that's where I found about the communities behind those games. And so there was like indie, uh, indie games forums where people would, you know, kind of start to do challenge. And those challenges are named Game Jam, right? So you would have like 48 hours, there would be a team and everyone on the forum would come up with a game uh, related to that team. And to me, it was mind-blowing. It was really something that, that talked to me and I really wanted to be part of that. But I was really just a lurker. It wasn't really, take, you know, it wasn't really part of the community, but I was always there. You know, those lurkers you never know about, but they're always there because they, every day they go to the forum and they read everything. But I don't know why. I never really participate. But I started doing those experiments just for myself, just to learn to code and still experiment. And I really got hooked to it and hooked to the vibe of that community. The idea that you could just, you know, kind of in an art, artsy way, you know, take your craft, your, your coding craft and experiment with ideas and concepts. And then not just, you know, like games, mecha- like pretty uh, mainstream game mechanics, but really experiment. What about if, you know, the game is all about just one button, you know, how far can the game mechanics or the story of the games change, given we all have just that basic game mechanics, which is just press one button, right? Like Flappy Bird is an example. Like, it's, it's, it's a stupid game mechanism. Just press a button. But there's hundreds of thousands of ways you can exploit the press one button, you know, and different game mechanics. So this was really fascinating to me. So I started to uh, experiment on my own. And then at one point I finished university and I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Uh, I feel like I want to become a game programmer, right? I want to have a game studio, but I feel I'm not, you know, the best one I did in the studio in, in, in engineering. So I, I don't have all the skills. So I want to meet people doing that. So maybe I could be the business guy, right? Since I've studied in business management. And, and if I meet those, we can start a studio and, and it would be awesome. So at that point... I decided to actually meet those uh, people that the best way would be um, to organize a game jam in Quebec City. So that's my own town. And to actually meet those guys, you know, that's what the people say. You need to meet co-founders, you know, you need to meet people with talents, you know. And and to me, it was a really great idea. Well, I was just going to create a massive game jam, like where every single developer in Quebec City would want to go and it's going to be awesome. It's so interesting because it's 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 kind of similar to your earlier idea where uh, you, you put up that free website for games and this is something that you know had been done in other languages but not in French and here you are creating a game jam for your city and it's not like this is the most original unique idea that anyone's ever come up with this is something that you already saw working that was already exciting and getting a lot of people motivated and you wanted to bring that to your own city and I, I think that's just such like a great way to go about it and the other thing I think that's so interesting as well is. I get a lot of people who come on the Indie Hackers forum and ask about how they can expand their network or people who email me uh, and say, you know, I've reached out to all these people, but nobody's responding. Nobody wants to work with me, et cetera. And the common theme is that if it's difficult for you to expand your network and to meet the people that you want to meet, it's probably the case that you haven't really done anything impressive that shows that you're serious about it. Yeah, exactly. Whereas in your situation, like you immediately went into like, let me actually do something. Let me create 
this giant game jam, which automatically makes like makes you a pretty significant person who's worth getting to know. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, to, to, I I think you need to bring meat to the game, right? You need you need to bring something to the table. You you can't just expect people with with you know with talents and 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 abilities to join you. Uh, you know, on nothing, right? You need to bring something to the table. And and at that time, I thought, well, I could be the business person. And by organizing the game jam would be like a good way to prove people that it would be great to start a game studio with that guy because he organized that big things. And the, the thing is that, you know, the game jam was called the Bivouac Urban, was kind of the urban campfire. And the idea was more than just a game jam. It was really a festival. It would be music, uh, there would be art displays. There would be the game jam. It would all be held outside. So the game jam would be in, in big tops and it would be held downtown. So we had like that massive idea to create that, that big event. And I did it with one of my best friends, which was at the time an event planner. So it was really a good fit. So I had a vision. He had the ability to, uh, you know, to, to manage the event. And then I managed the media. I raised the money and he did all the technical stuff to make the event happen, right? I was going to ask if you had no event experience, how did you do this? But it seems like you met the perfect person. Yeah, well, my, 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 it's one of my best friends. It's really, you know, now in Quebec is really one of the best to organize, you know, anything. Like he can pretty much do anything with any budget. You know, if you ask him, he's going to make it happen, right? So he's the kind of people you want to do business with. So we were kind of two, two, two guys who would just go add head downs and do things and and in a matter of five months the first year we met the mayor i think i met like really one big minister from the government uh you know we had no prior experience or no you know no one knew us but just by the sheer amount of work we put like sending a lot of females talking about the idea uh we kind of reached a lot of people in the government and 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 and, and at the city hall and and they all agreed that it was a great idea. You know, Quebec was trying to kind of uh, distance itself from Montreal as also a game, you know, a game, you know, development cities. So Ubisoft was there. Activision just bought like Binox, which was, uh, you know, a big independent studio. There was, uh, you know, a couple of other big independent studios. So Quebec City had kind of that game industry. So I was really um, with that idea, you know, game jam might be, not a novel idea now or even, you know, then on Indie Games Forum, but, you know, to the general public, it was crazy. It was a really awesome idea to let's create a game in 48 hours. It can't be possible, right? So the idea is that we would bring the people from the public to actually, you know, they could walk through the people coding their games during the 48 hours and at the end, it could actually play those games and it would be part of, of, of the judge that judged the games. It was a really tremendous success. So we had press, you know, I think I did live interview at CBC, like through all of Canada in French. Obviously, all networks were there. I, 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 I go to all, you know, radio shows talking about the event. It was a really good, big success. But at the end of the day, it was so much work. I, I never really ended up meeting or at least creating friendship with game developers during you know during that time so it was really frustrating to me because it felt like i just tapped into uh, a really big train but you know i couldn't really control it to to my initial goals right so your entire point was like 
to network with people and you were not able to do the thing that you wanted to do. How big was the conference? Because you said it was a huge success. And I know you ended up doing this for a number of years. Did it grow from year to year? Or was it sort of like an immediate hit and it stayed the same? Well, of course, financially, it was always hard. It's not kind of the kind of events you, you, that, that you know, can make you rich. So we weren't actually paying ourselves any salary, which just the reason I say it was successful is that we had you know, support you know, from everyone, from the city to the government to private businesses to the game studios. Everyone kind of chipped in. Not a lot of money, but to make it happen, right? So at the end, I think last edition, it was like, uh, we had a budget of like $200,000, you know, to actually organize a game jam in Quebec City to me, it's a huge success. You know, it's not like, it's not LA, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not New York, it's, it's a small city. So we had like 300 participants creating games. How did you eventually decide to move on from the conference and start your next project? So the last year of that conference, I... Uh, I told my business partner that I didn't want to do it. I just was, you know, I didn't have the energy to do it because I felt, you know, it wasn't, you know, in line with my own goals. So uh, I, I wanted to, and, and now it was really kind of becoming more hyped to start, you know, with companies and, and, and businesses. And I felt it's really more what I wanted to do, right? I was seeing friends doing it. And I was, you know, re- of course, you know, reading blogs and reading about all those success, right? So you want to join in, you want to be part of that since, you know, you're an internet kids. Uh, so, so at that point I told him, I told him like, I don't want to do it. But in the end he said, well, what if I do most of the work and you can just experiment the event yourself and actually create a game and you just need to deal with the media during the event and you can actually, you know, build your own team and be part of, of the event yourself. And I was like, well, that's a brilliant idea. Actually, I can kind of experiment my own creation. So that's what I did. And the funny story is that I actually end up partnering with people that were working on my co-working space. And those guys are, are now my business partner for, for Conference Batch and Missive. So it did end up working, right? So, but it wasn't in the game industry. It was at the end of the day, it was mostly in the web technology. But I did end up actually kind of not met, but at least create kind of friendship relation during that event. Okay, so what did you end up doing after the event was over? Well, uh, after the event, we uh, I was uh, thinking about what can I do again. It's, it's, it's always the question. So, and at that time, my gaming portal wasn't making any money anymore because you know with with ios and 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 it was kind of the mess it was the end of the flash game era or free game era on the on the internet everyone was playing with ipad games or iphone games right so so that was uh, i wasn't making any more money right so i was uh thinking that i needed to come up with an idea that could actually help me pay, pay the bills and i uh, was uh juggling with with a lot of different ideas and one day i kind of stumbled upon my friend so one of my best friends the one who organized the bivouac with me and he was in his apartment with his business partner so they were actually now a real event organizing company and they were kind of printing name badge with using like a real old windows program that they said they paid 500 dollars for it I was like what you paid five hundred dollars for that piece <laughs> of software. Really, it looks that ugly. And and at that time, I, I remembered. So I helped them like to it, and then I remember how 
painful it was for us. Like a few hours before each edition of the Pivot to actually print the name badges because you need to deal, you know, with last minute attendees uh, and, and the templates it never really works. It's, it's always, you know, complicated and you have no time for it. So I said, that's it, man. I'm going to build a name badge in a tool. And it's a totally unsexy idea, right? So, you know, now it, it, it seems really cool, but, you know, because it's making money. But at the time, my friends were like, really? You're going to build a name badge tool? That sounds strange, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just started to develop it using the Eventbrite API. And then um, I, I quickly realized that although I had the skills to build like kind of the JavaScript editor to build your name badge template online and then generate a PDF with it. I think I laid some, some, some design skills. Uh, so I uh, asked my, uh, the people who actually did the, the Bivouac uh, last edition with me to, uh, to actually join me and form a partnership. And these are, these are people from your co-working space. Exactly. So this is what's all happening uh, at the co-working space, which was, which, which I actually founded. So, yeah, so we start working on it. And, and after like five months, just a few weeks before we release the app, we receive an email from Mitch Colloran at Evanbright. And he's just, he's asking, are you, I think if I quote him literally was like, are you doing what I think you're doing? Because he saw like our uh, app name when we were querying the uh, dev API at Evanbright and was like, yeah, we're building a name, ba a name badge tool. And he said, oh, I need to call you. So I set up a call and he said, like, this is awesome. It's like, you know, it's the most painful thing. Like our users faces and, you know, our engineering team has no time to deal with just, you know, aspects of the product. So you're really going to solve a big pain. So I'm going to promote the hell out of you guys when you release. So we were like, whoa, okay. So, you know, so part of our success was really to kind of build the product around an ecosystem and to bring value to that ecosystem. So it's really where I see um, the initial reason why, why we, have, we had you know, success uh, that fast. It's just because we provided value to Evanbrite. And you know what's funny is that they never ask for money or a commission. So people always ask us, uh, so how, how much money do you give Evanbrite? We don't, you know, it's just like we provide value to them. Like people now, it's one more reason to use Evanbrite. When you use Evanbrite, you pay fees, right? You know, they don't care if, 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 and on top of that, they give us money because we manage the name batch, but their solution now has more value. Yeah, it's a win-win for everybody involved. Did you have a plan for how you were going to find customers and, and distribute your product before you talked to Eventbrite? Because at this point, this is your, you're really your third big project that you've worked on. You had your free games website, you had your Bivouac conference, uh, or Bivouac Game Jam, which was a super huge success. You know, what kind of lessons did you take from those earlier successes and how did you bring those into Conference Patch? The reality is I did a lot of different things before that didn't work, but I just didn't talk about them. <laughs> so my, my game portal, I launched it like in many languages and, they, you know, I never had like more than two visitors. Uh, I started like, you know, software businesses. To, I, I started a lot of things that never really went nowhere before that, but uh no, I, I had absolutely no plan on how to promote uh, a conference badge when I was developing it. Most people would tell you if you build something, people, if you build something great, people won't come, right? In a sense, it's not what happened with me, right? 
it's I never uh, I was never a really good marketer. I'm not that good to to tell stories. I'm not a teacher, so you know. So I, I I'm not the best one to talk about the value of something. You know, I get lost in my own words. So it wasn't. It was really always about focus focusing on on building something great. And and it's probably luck in some sense, but of course my success are not massive success. They're, you know, they're still small scale success, right? So that's probably the difference. You know, you know, of course, if you build something something great, some people will show up. Maybe you won't, you know, become as big as possible. But I would say I've never really focused on that. It was really about building something that worked. And every time we had a customer. We were like giving him like triple A service. If he was having some technical problems, we wouldn't go to sleep until it was fixed. You know, if someone at a conference and 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 he wanted like last minute uh, badges with QR code and we didn't have feature, we would like kind of not sleep until it was shipped because that guy needed it. And you know, we didn't want to let him down. So it was really about nurturing the few customers we had. And then I think it's just word of mouth. Plus Evanbrite, but now Evanbrite is like thirty-five percent of our of, of our traffic, and we never really advertised the solution. So I think it's really word of mouth that got, come, comes into play. Like people who use the product are like, you know, it saves me a lot of time because you know some people on on, on road shows doing events like every weeks, they used like to 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 lose so much so much time, you know, printing badges just hours before the event now it's just it's all cooked in baked in you just need to to order and that's it they reuse the same template they import their attendee list from Evanbrite. it's like they would pay like i think some would pay like 10 times the price they're paying now because it's just it's it's so it brings so much value to them so i think it's very interesting what you're talking about because you did almost all of like the perfectly right things in order to spark word of mouth growth and you have this you know this belief that like a lot of people think, okay, if you build it, they will come, which is like often railed against. Like you need to actually have a marketing plan, and but to some degree, it can be true, and the form of word of mouth grows if you do the right things. So if you're targeting a specific niche where all of your customers tend to hang out in the same place, like Eventbrite, or all the conference organizers know each other, or they're on Meetup.com or something, then your product is a lot more likely to be able to spread via word of mouth because those people actually talk to each other. Versus if you have a product that targets people who are like teachers and construction workers and professors, like they don't really talk to each other. So it's really hard to spread. Right. And on top of that, you guys built this great product that solved a pre-existing problem. And if you can build something that really solves a problem, then people might just find you on their own. If people are already hosting conferences, then you know what? They're Googling name badges and they're going to look at the options and pick the best one. And if your option is there, then suddenly you don't have to do all that much marketing and, and sales to really get in, in front of them. So looks like you guys checked all the right boxes. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is that, you know, although I said this with Conference Badge that I had no marketing plans, that with Missive on the other end, it's kind of a completely different space. You know, the problem is not that obvious. It's a generic public. You know, it's a generic app to actually, you know, manage your uh, team communication. So is isn't like if people are not looking for that, right? So, you know, that... The interesting story, I think, is that now we kind of are morphing ourselves to more like marketers because that's the only way you can grow a business like Missive. You need people to talk about it, right? You need to find creative way to make people talk about it because even if it's great, 
you know, um, if you want to spark, you know, of course, our goal is to let, you know, we do have, you know, kind of virality and some world smart growth. But the reality is that if you want to spark that initially, you still need to improve your marketing skills. So just for some context, can you describe to everybody what, what Missive is and how you ended up deciding to stop working on Conference Badge, at least as much as you were, and to start working on Missive? Yeah, okay. So the the interesting story is that um, as we grow Conference Badge, I, I, I was not, you know, it was like a part-time partnership with my co-founders. And at some point, we were making enough money to work full-time on conference batch or something right and as creative guy types of person of people we were like well let's work full-time pay ourselves a conference badge but leave the door open to explore other problems or opportunities right just try to uh to come up with something else that might be to us more interesting to work on or just to to you know to uh keep us interested in our uh, in our work so at that time we uh conference but started to grow and we were dealing with a lot of customer support uh you know emails from even rights partners uh and and you know we, our, our daily life was mostly in our email client and then we started to use something like uh, at the time it was ipjack but you know today you would probably use slack so that chat app where you know we a lot of was happening so we were chatting uh, about how we should implement features. We were chatting about some of our customers' requests, email. We were chatting about, you know, uh, emails received from Eventbrite who wanted us to, to deal with something. And it ended up, what we found out, that we, be, we ended up with, you know, two big, massive silos of communication. And, you know, we just felt, well, that might be a place, an opportunity where we can actually bring some value. What if, you know, we... Um, what if we merge back those two silos together, right? So, so the idea behind Missive is that it's an email client. It's a really powerful email client, okay? So it does everything you expect from an email client. It's news, it understands, it does, it, it does all those things, right? But instead of having email threads, what you get is conversation. And conversation can be composed of either emails or chat messages or a mix of both. So it's a really generic app, okay? It's it's a team communication app that merge email and chat, but it, it, it really can help you deal with a lot of scenarios like customer support. You don't really need an email desk when you work on missives because you can actually collaborate around emails received from customers, right? You can uh, you can draft replies together with your teammates, right? Uh, the chat app, well, in missive, it's threaded conversation, so you can kind of scope your topics you can use the powerful tools from the email clients, like you can snooze the chat conversation. So you could create a task in your chat conversation, like pay taxes and snooze it in 31 days. And then in 31 days, you can type like, hey guys, I just paid the taxes. And, and it brought all the, those possibilities to our daily workflows. And as, as, as we developed it, with, you know, we realized, oh, we really like that problem. And we really like uh, the solution we came up with. So. The more we were working on it, the less we were working on Conference Badge. And it was clear for us at some point that I would be our main activity, like Missive would became our main activity. And and it's, you know, it, it wasn't like instantly we switch, but now it's like 95% of our work is Missive. That's so fascinating. And it's, I think, much more clear to me what you were talking about earlier, which is that you really have to kickstart an idea like Missive to get it to grow. If you look at Conference Badge, it has a whole bunch of factors working in its favor. 
It was targeting a problem that already existed, and so people were already searching for the solution. And your solution to that problem, although it was well-designed, was also super simple and straightforward and easy to understand. And you guys also were targeting a niche in which everybody is kind of related. These are all event organizers, so they talk to each other and make recommendations, and therefore your product can grow via word of mouth. And they also hang out in single you know, hubs like Eventbrite, so you can reach large numbers of your customers all at once. Missive, on the other hand, is missing a couple, if not all of those factors. I mean, you're doing something completely new here, so people are not necessarily searching for, I need a collaborative email editor so I can draft replies at the same time as my coworkers. They don't even know that they want something like that. So I guess you have to go out of your way to educate them and teach them that this is a possibility that exists and can make their lives better before you can even make the sale. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, something we found out is like most product in that space, like really successful product like Basecamp, uh, Slack, Asana, every single founder of those companies add, you know, fame, either fame or previous massive success, right? Slack is, is got to be on Flickr, right? Or Basecamp, he has those podcasts, books, he built Rails, so he has this massive followership, it's the same if you look at all those successful kind of business have. They kind of use their own followers to bootstrap their business, which is not something we have, right? So when, you have, when you're facing some, you know, an issue like that, you need to look at, you know, what are your own advantage? Okay, so I don't have a, you know, a big audience. You know, it's a generic public product but i do know that there's a lot of value because i experimented i believe strongly in it and there's no way we're going to stop it's the same for the three founders so what we tell told ourselves is like let's take the uh, couple of inbound leads we have every week right let's talk with them one and one you know book a call every time and let's talk with them, see what's missing in the product. What the value could they get? Why are they interested in Missive in the first place? And having those conversations for now a year and a half, it changed a bit the course of the development roadmap, right? And each time we listened to our customers and we brought some more value to them, it really changed the growth curve of Missive. You know, it was like if people... Because when we launched initially, we had a kind of big spark of like a few thousands of people looking to it, never really stick to the product. But now every time we launch new features, we actually know a lot of people actually want this. So by listening to what the people, you know, we were interested in Missive, even if it wasn't big, if no one's kind of like famous person was, was saying like, it's the way to actually manage your business, use Missive. They were still interested and wanted to know why. And what was preventing them from switching? And by listening to them, and, and this is our advantage, right? We're passionate. I think we're a good product. Uh, uh, we're, you know, we're good at making good-looking and, and productive product. So we took this advice. We talk a lot with them. And then we invest all our time in, in improving the solution and slowly starting to pay off. Of course, you know, we're trying to, to improve our marketing skills. But still, I don't know, in five years, if, if I look back, you know, it's still an open-end question, but I, 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 maybe I'm still going to say, well, the answer is just to build something that is damn good, you know? <laughs> well, at the very least, you guys can be sure that you're solving a problem that at least some people have because you had this problem and you're, you're really just scratching your own itch here, which means that you can easily test it and see, okay, did this make my life better? 
Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone else has the same problem that you did or that they want the same solution that you want and the way that you guys want it, but at least you're starting off on the right foot. You're starting off in a good place and you can build from where you are. But I must say that now we are at the place where we do have uh, really interesting revenue with Missive. So, so it, it was like six months ago, it was still you know, a big leap of faith. <laughs> but now it's like we're well seated. You know, it's like we know people are willing to pay and we just really need to scale this. How much would you say that you really had to change the product itself to get it from where you started to a point where it, you know, was really gaining traction and you guys had a lot more confidence? Well, yes, something we realized that people, uh, you know, we were seeing like Missive as a mashup between an email client and a chat application. And the thing that was missing was uh, people find it really great, but they were telling us like, well, that's cool, but I still, you know, I still end up, you know, my email is mostly my task list. I do so many things and it would be really interesting and missive if that task list, those emails are not just tasks for myself. A lot of time it's tasks related to my coworkers, right? So the ability to chat around those is nice, but I, I it would be cool if I had some more guidance. So if I could, you know, assign a conversation to someone or create a task, you know, an inline task in the comments of an email conversation uh, and assign this to someone. So when we brought the concept of, of assignment in Missive, it really completely changed uh, the conversation with customers. And, and, and when we uh, introduced this, people were like, okay, now, you, you know, I, I will definitely try that with my team. Okay. And, and, you know, the difficulty with a product like Missive is that, you know, obviously you don't need to convince just one person. You need to convince everyone in the team. And, and, and that's the art part. And I think I remember reading an interview from Slack founder and said the same thing. Obviously, he had a lot of success doing it. But he said, like, the artist part is just you need to convince everyone. That's just the perfect fit for their, for their team. So what are your goals with Missive in the long term? Because unlike like Conference Badge and unlike your free game site and even your game jams, this really seems like something that has the potential to have a lot more reach. I mean, pretty much everybody uses email. And if you can build a better email client, then that's a lot of potential users. So are you guys considering raising money to try to grow faster? Or do you just want to bootstrap it and get like a small slice of a huge pie? Or what are you optimizing for in terms of the outcome? Uh, I, I don't have a long-term plan. I, I plan I've, I've never really did any plan, right? Anything I did, right? So I don't have a long-term plan. I do see the value of VC money if you already have tractions and you need to scale a winning recipe, right? Uh, which I, you know, I think like we still have yet to, we're not yet at, at, at that moment. So I don't think I would be interested in, you know, have discussion with VC at the moment. But, you know, if, if we do reach a point where it's a winning uh, recipe and it's clearly laid out and you just need to, you know, to put money on top of it to make it grow, why not? But at the moment, it, it's continuing what we're doing to get to a point where it's, it reaches potential. Because I do have, you know, those calls with my customers and, and, and they really are enthusiastic about the product. So it's really our goal to put the product in more ends. So that would be the short-term goals, but long-term goals, why not? Make it as big as possible. So we're getting close to the end of our hour here, but to wrap things up, uh, it, it's been really interesting looking at all of your successes over the years. And I know we skipped over uh, a lot of failures. Maybe we'll have to do another episode and talk about those as well. But I think there's probably more to be learned from the successes. 
because you're really good at every industry that you're in, taking a look at what was working and what was broken and building something even bigger off of the back of that. So when you had your free game site, you know, that turned you on to the game jams and you ended up building like this humongous event for yourself and for so many other people. Uh, and then you got into the event space because of that. And you were able to find out, okay, you know, here's what's broken with events and here's this massive opportunity to create conferencebatch.com and really, you know, make a lot of money helping people solve this terrible problem that you yourself had. And then as you continued working with your team, it became apparent to you that email was really broken for your use case and it didn't support collaboration very well. And so you ended up coming up with the idea for Missive. What are your tips for people who aren't as good as you are at coming up with ideas for themselves to work on? How can they use their experiences to, to look at the world around them like you have and identify the problems that are worth solving? I would say do try to have fun in what you're doing. You know, sometimes being too, too serious is hard to, to make it on the long term. Lower expenses, I saved a lot of money, which enabled me after university to experiment a lot with either code or the bivouac. And I experimented for two years because of the money I've saved. I've never really spent any money on, you know, big things. You know, that's really interesting because saving money is something that I, I don't think we talk about enough, but it's really good advice because what it ends up doing is it, it takes pressure off of yourself to have to succeed in the short term which is not only stressful and, and no fun, but it also compromises your judgment and prevents you from really being able to experiment and take the time to build something that people will find valuable. Yeah, I think that's actually really good what you just say. You're pretty good at summarizing uh, other people's thoughts. Don't put too much pressure on yourself, actually, either financially or emotionally, you know, because it's, it's hard to deal with the, the pain of, of, of not feeling you're successful and seeing people around you having success. So yeah, lower the pressure, keep, you know, good mental state and experiment. You know, that's what I did as well. I always do is experiment, try things, you know, either with code or your life. That's pretty much it. All right. Well, I think that is a great note to end on. And I had a really good time talking to you. Can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about you personally and about the things you're working on, like Conference Badge and Missive? Yeah, well, I don't tweet a lot, but you can follow me on Twitter. It's B-L-E-H-O-U-X. And else it's missiveapp.com or conferencebadge.com. All right. Thanks, Philip. It was good to talk. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you're looking for a way to help support the Indie Hackers podcast, then you should subscribe on iTunes and leave a quick rating and a review. It only takes about 30 seconds, but it actually really helps get the word out. And I would personally appreciate it very much. In addition, if you are running an internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other internet entrepreneurs on the ndhackers.com forum. It's basically a community of like-minded individuals just giving each other feedback and helping out with ideas and landing pages and marketing and growth and other internet business-related topics. That's www.ndhackers.com forum. Hope to see you guys there.